Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have an episode with Clay Hill of Hill Guides and Outfitters. Clay is a sixth generation rancher in Grand County in Colorado. Clay, how you doing? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're going to have fun today. Um, you're somewhat of a mule deer nut. Uh, being a sixth generation rancher, uh, how has being a rancher in Grand County uh, for six generations, how is that, uh, you know, sometimes when guys like yourself grow up around mule deer all the time, you almost get sick of it. How how has that actually been the opposite with you and made it where you just really, really enjoy mule deer? So I'd say the benefit of being in this area for so long is that we tend to know most of the ranchers and locals around here. And local knowledge is worth its weight in gold in my opinion and i mean it's a it's allowed me to be on a lot of different properties and see a lot of different areas and in colorado especially more vague but i mean it's it's put me in some places that people don't normally get to see and i get to see animals that other people usually never see during the hunting seasons so i mean it's 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 helped me a lot in scouting and getting familiar with different spots and uh mainly people man you you can't yeah For you sure. can't uh so yeah it's 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 awesome being sixth generation rancher up here uh, you know sixth generation that's just unbelievable so that's like going back into great great grandpa type stuff um you got stories from some of the old timers, um, you know, that have been passed down like, oh, yeah, my great great grandpa used to trap up here. I mean, I'm sure that, that, that some of the crazy stories you've heard as a kid, you got any of them that you could share with just um, history of your family. And and uh, I'm sure they've seen ups and they've seen downs and seen hard times. I mean, I'm, I, it, I love talking to old timers, just wondering if anything jumps out at you. Uh, from from any of your uh, generation that uh, you could share with us? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of family history with my family. I mean, on my mom's side, my great-grandfather was a state senator, and on my dad's side, he was kind of a land tycoon around Silverthorne and stuff. He actually started the town of Silverthorne, Colorado. So we've uh, we've kind of grew up here and established a lot of the different areas in the in the valley. But the coolest thing to me is, all the old timers, you don't even see pictures because they don't really care about the Boone and Crockett, you know, entering their deer or anything in the books. But you go to these old timers' house and there's just 220 inch, 230 inch bucks hanging in their living room from the early days, and you've never even seen them. You know, most people don't even know what's around. So it's made it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool going around and seeing all the big deer and animals killed, and and those guys tell you stories. But man, you'd, you'd have to hear it from them to appreciate them. You know. For sure. Let's let's tell the listeners when you say Grand County for those that aren't familiar with Colorado, kind of give a maybe a, a geography lesson as far as where is Grand County and and some of the borders and the country or towns that kind of encompass that area. So kind of the heart of it is uh, Kremlin, Colorado, and it, it's a uh, it goes south to Silverthorne and then north towards Steamboat Springs. And then to the uh, east, we got Granby, and it's kind of bordered on the Gore Range on the west, which is where Eagle County starts. So it's kind of, it sits in a big valley here. It reminds me a lot of, like, Gunnison County and Valley there. 
a lot of big sage bulls, and we got quakies and timber up higher. So we have really, really good deer winter range also. So that's why we get a lot of we get a lot of deer from different areas that travel down here into the into the valley. When I uh, I spend the summers in Colorado, there in Carbondale, and before that I was in in Vail for um, for five years, uh, and so I got to go and, and fish the Blue River quite a bit. Um, you know, around Silverthorne, out of Dillon Reservoir, and then um, below Green Mountain Reservoir, um, you know, floating on the blue. And the blue, correct me if I'm wrong, comes out of Lake Dillon and flows down through that valley, through Green Mountain Reservoir, and then eventually into the Colorado. So, in essence, that valley right there, uh, that's kind of, is that kind of the center point of the valley if not is it not i mean there's there's a lot of country to the east there and there's a lot of country to the west yeah exactly i mean the blue is if you're a fishing guy everybody knows about the blue river and uh but yeah it does kind of lie right in the center and i mean these units are huge man they go all the way to the rocky mountain national park and we border a lot of those areas too so it's a big area on on your own personal hunting, do you get time to go out and, and, and not only now, but growing up, were you able to hunt uh, a lot? And if so, what what were you mainly hunting? So, yeah, I grew up, uh, my dad was an outfitter in the state of Colorado during the 80s and 90s, so I grew up in hunting camps with him. And, and as, as I got old enough to hunt at 12 years old, man, I was I was out in the hills all by myself, and my dad took me out and I mainly hunted mule deer then. I mean, I've shot bears and mountain lions and, I mean, numerous elk, but even at a young age, I've always been involved with the mule deer. They just, they always are what seems to catch my eye and it's what I got, what's got my full attention, you know? Well, your dad being an outfitter, did he outfit in Grand County kind of right where you're at now or were you guys in a different area? No, he was based out of the Kremlin area here also. And uh, at one time, there was one landowner that he owned a majority of all the private ranches here. And my dad had all those leased up. And he was a he was a big outfitter at that time. So hanging around your dad as a kid and being introduced, you know, around mule deer all the time, you know, would you say that the the um, the prime years are behind us or do you see every bit as big a deer now? Or, I mean, what do you remember as a kid compared to now? Is there any change? You know, honestly, I think that it's getting better just with, uh, you know, the state parks and wildlife, they're trying to manage our herds and keep harvest numbers down. I mean, back in the old days, it seemed like they shot everything. I mean, four point, you know, spike bulls, everything, four points, any deer they were happy with. I mean, the camps, you know, they were killing everything. So you didn't see the quality of animals that you see nowadays, in my opinion, in most of the units in Colorado. And, I mean, around here, you know, we're starting to get a lot of, you know, in my eyes, trophy potential. A trophy is different in everybody's eyes, but you, you see a lot of them 170-plus type deer. And it's kind of like that in the whole state, man. I mean, anywhere you go now, you have a great chance of shooting a, you know, there's a 200-inch beer in every unit in colorado you know so it's it's awesome the parks and wildlife have done a good job managing it do you remember when uh pretty much all of colorado was over the counter and then i want to say it was about 15 years ago and 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 
sorry for not being able to state the exact date when it all changed, but when there was a big push towards limited draw uh, on the on the deer as well as on the elk, um, and some of I'm sure the public outcry of uh, people, you know, outfitters, uh, you know, I'm sure it was a big heated debate. Um, were you a part of that as far as, you know, were you just a kid then or, or, um, were you right in the middle of it? And, you know, how has maybe your opinion changed or, or opinions that you've seen around you, uh, whether it be people in town and business owners and what have you, how, how does that all, how has that all played out in your mind? So I was pretty young when they were doing all that. But, um, I mean, I know that at the time, like you said, the public outcry, everybody was pretty upset about it. They were worried they wouldn't be able to shoot a deer anymore. You know, their chances were going to be slim to none of getting a tag. And, uh, I mean, really, in, in all reality, it's still pretty easy to draw most units in the state. There's a lot of great units with that take zero points. And, and in, in hindsight, you know, I mean, all it did was benefit the wildlife, and it gave us it gave the wildlife a chance to reach a mature age, in my opinion. You know, now we got, I mean, we got great deer, like I said, in the whole state. Our elk are getting better quality. Um, I mean, it helped everything. And now the locals have kind of accepted it. And, I mean, it's, like I said, it's not that hard to draw most of the units in the state. So everybody's kind of come to one with it. Yeah. But I mean, before it was, before it was pretty much all the units were just, you know, over the counter and, and, you know, the resource was taken a beating. Um, and it, it's, it's just awesome to see how Colorado has been able to manage some over the counter units, um, you know, and then also have limited draw and have the quality of their animals, you know, go up. I mean, they've always shot big bucks in Colorado, always, every single mm-hmm. year, there's always big bucks, but it just seems like the more, the better management and the, the, the trophy management for older age class animals, you know, it's just been, it's been great to see how an opportunity like Colorado is, you know, it's like the place for mule deer, uh, you know, in, in the West. And, you know, it's, it's not bad for elk either, you know. Colorado still doesn't probably see the real, real high, high end bulls like, you know, Arizona and Nevada and Utah. Um, but they do have quality elk hunting. And I would argue that probably there's more there's more elk hunters in the state of Colorado than than all those other states probably combined. Yeah, I would agree 100 percent with you there, man. There's a there's a lot of over the counter tags, you know, uh, statewide tags with the exception to some of the limited units. But, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of elk hunters out here, and we have a huge elk herd, so a lot of opportunity for elk hunters in the state of Colorado. And like you said, I mean, we, I mean now we're starting to see a lot of the 330 to 340-type bulls in units where if you used to shoot a 300-inch bull, it was a, it was a giant bull for that area. And now, you know, you're starting to get that 330-type bull in there. So it all helps out, and it's it's made it all good. You know, I've got a, a question. It, it's it's kind of moving. It's kind of switching gears on you. But uh, uh, in in the state of Colorado, as far as uh, private property and public property, um, in the state of Colorado, does the private land have to be 
um, properly marked in order for it to be enforced as trespassing or no trespassing? Or, or is it, it doesn't even have to be marked? Because I know in Arizona, you have to have, I want to say it's like every 150 feet or something, the property has to be marked. It has to be marked at all the ingress and egress locations. And if it's not, people can actually trespass and get away with it. But I think Colorado's different. Do you know the, do you, from your recollection, like what's the specifics on that? So yeah, here we don't have to have our private marked. It's the, the public's. They have to know. I mean, that's why, for instance, like Onyx Maps is blown up in, in the state. And most of your big hunters, they, they use that, you know, like the Bible, man. They Everywhere they go, they got that in their hand, and they're walking these private boundaries. And, I mean, it's it's a useful tool for Western hunters now in most states, but especially here because as soon as they set foot over that fence line, I mean, these, these private landowners, they're, they're watching their land, and, and they don't want to see people on there that ain't supposed to be. so. Yeah, you have to know where you're at at all times here. So, in other words, if it's not marked and you're 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 walking out through the middle of someone's property and it's not marked, you can be every bit as liable for for um, trespassing as if you know you jumped over the right over the no trespassing sign. Exactly, and and you do not you do not want to be caught on private here without permission, and especially you do not want to shoot a an animal on private because. They kind of throw the book at you if you do that. So definitely be careful if you come out here in Colorado and, and know your, your property lines. Yeah. As a mule deer, you know, having a love for mule deer, you know, it's kind of a love-hate relationship, I know, with the elk and the amount of elk that you guys have. How do you see the balance of mule deer and elk in your country there in Grand County? Um, you know, do do the elk indeed definitely push the mule deer around? Um, and what have you personally seen uh, growing up there? So, you know, I would say that they don't really bother one another here. Um, they both kind of have different habitat. And in, in this area, all the way up to Canada, and I think even down into New Mexico, we've had the beetle kill hit us. And we have a lot of timber up high. And I remember when I was younger, the grass and stuff wasn't as good in the timber, so the elk always came out on the big open faces in the parks and the quakies, and you could kind of set people around in the parks, and they had a good chance of shooting elk and stuff. But now with the beetle kill, the sun goes through there, and we got grass, you know, up to, I mean, over their backs and a lot of the timber spots. So the elk never even leave the timber most of the time. I mean, they can eat, they can drink, they got cover, they can hide from people. It's noisy in there. If you're hunting in the timber, you know, I mean, it's, it's loud, and so they kind of got they got the one up on us in that in that aspect. But in my you know in my opinion, the elk they don't really come out in in the deer country any time of the year. I mean, right now in the winter range they're sharing it, but everything's just kind of surviving, you know. What what has your winter been like? Because we're hearing you know I've been keeping close tabs on it, obviously because I'm a fisherman and I fish there all summer, and you know most of the places are you know 130 to 160 percent of normal um what have you seen specifically in your area uh this year uh as far as uh snow level snowpack and where are you at right now so early on in the winter um in december we got pounded with snow i mean it was it was looking like it was going to be a real hard winter it pushed the wildlife down low by the highways early in the winter and everything was getting hit by the cars 
and and we got into january and it warmed up for like two weeks we had two weeks of 50 degree weather and it melted all the snow off and like right now it's bare to 8500 feet so all the wildlife moved back up they're off the highways i mean it's it's a really it really changed and i mean in my valley in the area where i'm at i mean the wildlife's doing great there is some areas in colorado like gunnison i know that they're having a little bit harder of a winter and they were feeding some of the wildlife, I think more so to keep them off the highways and out of people's haystacks, ranchers and stuff. So I know they've, they've, they've encountered a little loss with their wildlife, but I don't, I still don't think it's as bad as like the 2007 winter and, you know, in that area. How important, um, do you feel it is for antler growth? You know, like here in Arizona, you know, we live or die by our moisture, whereas, you know, Colorado, I, I feel like it's, it's not as big of impact. But I was just curious what your thoughts are um, for antler growth for those mule deer. Um, how important is it for it to have a warm January and have melt off where those deer are not stressed? Um, and, and can you directly say that it, you know, affects their antler growth? Yeah, I, I I think it all does. I mean, like you said, we're not as dependent on water as Arizona and some of these other states that rely on it. You know, we got a lot of water in Colorado, a lot of rivers. I mean, our water is always, it's really lush. And um, But as far as the winter goes, I mean, if we have a hard winter, you know, it's really hard on our wildlife. And if the snow drags out into, you know, April, May, and they're still having a hard winter, they, they just can't get that nutrients they need to get them horns growing good early on. And I mean, it, it does affect them. Last year, I seen a little bit of a horn deduction. I guess you could say they they didn't grow as good last year as what I expected. Some of the bucks that I watch year after year to do, you know, I thought they'd blow up last year and they didn't. And we kind of had that winter that drug on last year, and it was cold. We had negative temperatures for you know a month in a row, and and it does affect them for sure. And in early spring, always helps. They can get the you know when they start growing, they lose them horns and start growing right away. I mean the more nutrients and higher proteins and all that stuff helps. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a big deal here, our winter. And, um, are your, are all of your antlers on the ground? Um, already we're recording this, um, the 9th of March. I'm just curious if, if, if all of your elk and all of your deer have dropped or where are you at with, with, with those deer and, and elk on their antlers dropping? So I'd say about 90% of our deer have dropped. I still see some of the smaller bucks carrying. Most of the larger deer have dropped. Um, I haven't seen any elk yet that have dropped. You know, they usually they usually start going here a little more towards the end of this month. So, But the deer, they, they started dropping early this year. I kind of always use Valentine's Day as a rule of thumb of when they drop in this area. And, and they were dropping in January this year. It was, it was kind of weird. Do you think that's because of that warm-up in January? I mean, do you think that had anything to do with it? So I think they got a little stressed out in December when we had, uh, I mean, we had a lot of snow in December, and I think they were kind of going into that survival mode, and they were like, hey, we're going to get pounded this year, and just the stress and everything, it, it kind of triggered something that made them start dropping in January there, and then it warmed up, and it kind of lingered on, but for the most part, I mean, they were all dropping into January, most of your bigger bucks, you know. Your deer there in, in Grand County, which way do they go? Um, let, let's talk a little bit about where do they winter? Like, 
do they go north or which direction do most of them go? So the way that Grand County and um, Middle Park sits is it's it like all big mountains at the top and it all funnels down here into these big sage valleys. And the sage valleys go, I mean, man, they are huge. It's, it reminds me a lot of Gunnison, like I said earlier. But, I mean, they can they winter anywhere from Granby to Kremling all the way to Silverthorne, just hang out in these valley floors. It's a, it's a big area, and we get a lot of deer from that come a long ways. I mean, they've started putting radio collars on a lot of the, the bucks and does around here to kind of see where they are going and manage them and watch where they migrate. And we're getting deer coming over here in Kremling from Walden. And there's some, you know, they got to go over the Continental Divide to do that. So, so they're, they're traveling Walden's a long way. Walden's over in the park, right? Walden's in Rocky or over by uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and it kind of is, but what? In more so, it's up by the Wyoming border. So it's, uh, I mean, it's a long ways. As a crow flies, it ain't super far, but if you put the miles on and all the mountains they got to come over to get here, it's it's really amazing to see that these animals are coming here. So, in other words, those animals are coming south and west away from Wyoming border and coming down south in in all that sagebrush there uh, around Kremlin. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm not saying all of them do, but they are. For the amount of collars they have on deer, they've had some bucks and stuff that have traveled from, from Walden and over in that valley over here. So, I mean, it's hard telling where a lot of these deer are coming. And I know that we see a lot of great deer. Is that like 30, deer. 40 miles, or is that like... 70 80 miles it's uh, about 55 miles around on the highway wow so wow. it's it's a good ways man and you know I'm, and you can in the winter time here we see a lot of really really good deer you know for quality size trophy size and come summertime you just never know where the heck they're gonna be <laughs> yeah and and speaking of that in the summer um they can be down low right on the blue river all the way up to you know up high 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 right exactly and you know that brings up another good point i was going to mention is so in the valley we have here when when i was younger i mean it was all big cattle country big ranchers and over the years because we sit kind of in the middle of all the ski resorts we've got a lot of the the very wealthy people that have moved into this valley because they can buy a thousand acres for what they could buy a house for in Vail. so these people are moving in here and they don't want any part of the cattle anymore so they're they're not running cattle on their properties. They're not hunting. And, and these are big ranches. You know, there's some 20,000-acre ranches here where they aren't hunting at all. And if they, if they are at all on some of them, it's very limited. So in, in a, on a good note, though, what it's done is it's, it's allowed a lot of these deer and elk to, to reach mature ages. And, and you see a lot of the big bucks on their property and bulls. And it's kind of helped our area, too, you know, as far as trophy quality. When do you see the most running activity? You know, I, I have a feeling that a lot of it is actually after your your fourth season hunts. But I'm curious, I mean, when do you see the most rutting and, and how prolonged is it? Like, when will they rut to like where you're just seeing them go crazy? And then when does it kind of wane off? Um, I always feel like um, Thanksgiving is kind of the, the peak rut in most of the areas in Colorado here. Uh, you know, we do see them starting pretty good that fourth season. And, and a lot of it to me is, I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff that goes into the rut, but our weather here, if we get a lot of snow, it pushes a lot of them deer down into, you know, smaller areas. And I think when they get in those smaller areas, you get some of those does go into their estrus cycle and stuff. And, and you see, you know, they kind of kicks it off. And so it can trigger and they can go in third season too. Third season's always a really good time too. But Thanksgiving, 
generally seems to be like when everything is going and the bucks are just dumb. And it's probably uh, awesome to to uh, run around with you in a pickup uh, around Thanksgiving time just looking at, I mean, you could literally go and what, look at 40, 50 bucks in a day? Oh, easily. I mean, you could you could drive around Thanksgiving into December and when these deer start migrating in here, it ain't nothing to see a hundred bucks a day, you know? Wow. It's, it's, I, it's look, pretty cool. I'm looking on your Instagram page, uh, Hill Guides and Outfitters, um, and there's a buck you've got a video of that's got a bunch of trash on his. It's the latest post you've made. He's kind of by a wire fence there, and you can see he's got a couple J-hook kind of kickers on the left side, and his... his um, uh, G G three or G four is forked. His main beam is forked. That's a cool deer. Yeah, and you know, like that, that kind of goes back to what I was telling you about all these people buying these big ranches. Is uh, those are the kind of deer that are surviving. And as a note to the public, you know, I mean, when that rut kicks on, these deer do come off of the public and they go down in or off the private and they go down into the public. So it's uh, it's definitely something that I think that you know, a scouting tool. People, if they want to come hunt this area or they draw these units, they should spend some time in the summer and in early fall seeing where these bucks are because generally they stay within, you know, 10 or 15 miles of that, that area in the rut. Cause, so I think it's, it's, a good, it's a good scouting tool for people. Well, I think, um, like you said, having those sanctuary areas where these deer can, can you know, grow up and, be, and get big, but when, as soon as, you know, they go chasing does, they could end up anywhere. Like, I mean, it happens every year in Colorado where, you know, a big giant deer is all of a sudden right smack dab, right in the middle of public ground chasing does. Yeah. And, you know, them big bucks, they, they tend to know the boundaries in that archery season. They know where they're safe. But as soon as the rut kicks on, I mean... Most of your big mule deer guys and anybody for that matter, they know that there ain't no fence lines. They don't know any boundaries. And, and I see a lot of people up here now, like I said, with the Onyx maps, they're walking our fence lines and a buck jumps it and they shoot it. You know, I mean, more power to that guy because he did his research and, and he deserved it, you know. Yeah. I, I'm also looking here. There's a big velvet buck with a with a um, big hanger on his um Looks like he's got a, a, a hanger on his left main beam, and then he's got like an extra main beam eye guard on his left side as well. Um, there's a picture of you, you holding him. What buck is that? So that was the uh, uh, 2015 Colorado Governor's Tag. Um, he was a very special deer, man. It's pretty cool to... Um, so I... I but a little story about me, I usually end up helping some of the Colorado Governor's Tag Hunters and scouting the state and and using my knowledge of the locals and just different ranchers throughout Colorado to help them out. So I get to see some really cool deer, and, and that deer and Kate, and was a very special deer to us. <laughs> Pretty neat to see him. What was the nick? Did you guys have a nickname for that bugger? Oh, man, I can't remember what the heck that rancher was calling him. There's Spider. a bunch of big... There's a bunch of big deer on your um, Instagram page. Uh, it, it seems like Colorado, too, Colorado kicks out some non-typical bucks um, in general around your country. 
you know, is it more common to see, you know, big typical bucks or big non-typical bucks specifically where you're at? You know, if you look in the record books, there's a lot of big typicals taken out of Eagle County and we border Eagle County. So I think we get the trickle effect over the years and we've got a lot of those typical genetics over here. And like I was telling you, you know, you go into some of these old timers houses and you just be, you know, in awe of the bucks they got hanging in there. But I see a lot of just giant typicals that have never even been entered in the record book. Um, but saying that, you know, like you said, we do got a lot of the non-typical genes over here. Different areas seem to hold more. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty rare thing to see a buck like that anywhere in, in any state. So I don't want people to have high expectations seeing those 240, 250 inch bucks, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're pretty exceptional bucks for sure. For sure. Um, in, in your mind, these, these big deer that are, you know, that you've been a part of getting killed on the governor's tags and such, um, you know, can a deer like, how old is a deer like some of these bucks? And in your mind, you know, can, can a, can a deer blow up from say three to four or where is kind of the magic number that you've seen where deer can just, you know, explode and blow up? Yeah, that's a, that's a funny question because I honestly don't know. And I've always thought, you know, six year old deer was about his peak of his life. But, um, that deer, for instance, that you're talking about the velvet deer on there, when we walked up to that buck, man, I, he was only a four-year-old deer. <laughs> and it was just wow. amazing to me that you could get a 258-inch deer at four years old. So I would have I would have liked to have seen him, you know, the next year and see what he did. But it's uh, you just never know. Yeah. Well, and, and two, it's, it's, it's hard when you've got a deer of that caliber. You know, what are you going to do? Let him go and, and, and run the risk that, you know, he gets runs off in the wrong spot and gets shot so i mean i think i think even with the governor's tag you have to take your opportunities when you when they present themselves and you know it, it's hard to you know hold back and not shoot a deer because you don't know if the wrong time he you know gets sick after some does and just wanders straight out in the middle of you know public ground and maybe where it's a hundred percent draw too yep for sure and, you know, a trophy in everybody's eyes is different. I mean, I deal with a lot of them, the guys that want the 200-inch deer or nothing, and unfortunately that's very hard to do anywhere. 200-inch deer is a very special deer, no matter what he has or what he is, you know. I mean, it's it's very hard to get a 200-inch mule deer, and, and people come to me all the time, when, you know, they see the pictures, and I'm like, you don't understand. That's a, that's a very special tag, and... We get to hunt a lot of country to, to find that one deer. Yeah, for sure. With with what you know about Colorado, in your opinion, for for the um, public land hunters out there that, that are really into it, in your mind, um, do they have a better, which hunt, whether archery, muzzleloader, rifle, which hunt, in your mind, if someone had a lot of time, could they consistently kill big deer in Colorado? You know, and what's funny is I, I really feel like a good archery hunter, if he would spend, you know, 15 days, 20 days up in a lot of these units, he could consistently shoot 190 inch plus deer. But there's just not a lot of guys who have that amount of time with jobs and work and they can do that. So, I mean, it always comes down to the rut, you know, they can come in for five days and they get to see a lot of deer, a lot of action. 
and you, your odds are better than, you know, as far as amount of days you're able to hunt. But I mean, I really think that there's a lot of units in Colorado where the archery hunt is, is a guy's best, best tag. If you got some time to spend on it. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking here at the Gohan insider and, and I'm just going to scroll down for an example, like, you know, here's, um, seven, eight, nine, 19, 191 is a 68% draw with zero points. Um, here's 15, hundred percent draw 18, 27, 28, 37, 181, 371, 100 percent, 20, hundred percent, 23, 24, 97 percent, 25, 26, 100 percent, 35, 36, 45, 361, 100 percent, you know, 38, 100 percent. And on and on. There's just that's just a, a, a rough example. But it seems to me as an archer, like you said, if 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 you had the ability to come and spend a lot of time scouting, um, most wouldn't you agree that most all these Colorado units in the high country have big deer? I mean, 190 plus deer. Oh yeah, I, I mean I know for sure they do, and every unit in the states like that, regardless of you know trophy book entries in the past or anything. And like you said, I mean I highly encourage people if you're sitting on a lot of points and you're not sure what to do. I mean, like even Eagle County, Unit 44, you know, you can draw those archery tags with zero points. So use it as a scouting tool. Yeah, you might not shoot that 200-inch deer, but use it as a time to go explore the unit and, you know, see where these bucks are summering, talk to the locals, get the local knowledge if they'll help you, you know, see what they know about the winter range, and then you can kind of pattern these deer and hopefully find them in the middle somewhere. And I want to ask you... um let's talk a little bit about the draws in Colorado and you can put in for some of these hunts as your second choice and draw them and not lose your points. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So explain how that works because in Arizona and a lot of these other states, if you put in for your first and second choice, you know, you lose your points if you draw, but how, how does Colorado work in that regard? So if you put in on your first preference, um, preference point only, and then your second choice, some of these units that you're talking about where you can draw them with zero points at a hundred percent chance, um, you, you draw the tag and you gain a preference point. And so, I mean, so so in other words, Clay, what you're saying is they need to put on their, on their application, the first choice is preference point. Exactly. Then the second choice, apply for some of these units that are 100%. They still get their preference point, and they also draw their second hunt, and they get to go hunting. Yeah, and, you know, I get people all the time. I'm like, have you applied for preference points? And they're like, no. And I'm like, you've been thinking about coming to Colorado for five years, and you didn't apply for preference points? And they're like, no, I didn't know it was that big of a deal. So I'm always like, man... If you're not even thinking about hunting Colorado, at least put in for a preference point because when you do get ready to come, I mean, one, two points might be the difference in you having to buy a landowner voucher or, you know, or drawing the hunt. Yeah, and so in Colorado, you've got the draw, and then you also just mentioned landowner voucher, and I know, you know, over the years, the landowner voucher thing has been 
you know, kind of an up and down system. There's been some changes to it. You know, there's been, you know, no tag brokering. There's been a lot of things kind of involved with a landowner voucher system. Can you talk a little bit about how the landowner voucher system works in Colorado? Yeah, so um, as an outfitter here, you know, a lot of the ranches, the private ranches we lease, they can apply for um, landowner vouchers, and it allows them to take, you know, have tags to take people on their property if somebody don't draw it. And so as an outfitter, you know, the it gives us another option if somebody wants to come and they didn't have enough points or they don't even want to, they want to put in for preference points, don't want to waste their three to four points on the tag, they have the option of buying a landowner voucher. And, you know, depending on the unit and um, the where it's at and the people, those tag prices can vary. I mean, they can be really high dollar and some of the better units, you know, down to 500 bucks and some of the, the less known units, you know. So they're out there for an option. I mean, the general public, it's hard for them to get them because of the fact that the, most of the outfitters that lease the lands and stuff, you know, they usually get first ride at them. But um, it is an option for people looking for a, a guided hunt. And so just to reiterate what you're saying is um, if people have points and, and apply uh, that's great. They can also uh, just buy a landowner voucher and still apply. So in other words, if they don't draw, they can buy a landowner voucher and it does not affect their points. So I exactly. could buy a landowner voucher from you. I could come hunt, say, on a third season or on a fourth season or on an archery hunt, and I, it doesn't affect my points in any way. And I could buy a landowner voucher from you every year if I wanted, correct? Yeah, exactly. And there's actually some ranchers and stuff in in Colorado that they don't they don't want an outfitter on it, and so they will. They'll just sell their landowner voucher to a general public guy for a trespass fee, and it's you know self guided. They get a hunt on that guy's property, and you get a tag with it, pretty much. But at the same token, it's it's a lot of the landowners they don't want to sell it to the general public because you have to give access to the hunter to your property if they buy your voucher, and so. Uh, a lot of the people that own the land, they don't want the people on their property, you know. But most okay. of those guys don't even apply for that landowner vouchers in, or they just give it to friends and family. Let's talk about that just a little bit, um, just so I'm clear. When you get a landowner voucher, uh, let me back up. If, if I were to buy a landowner voucher, I can come hunt the private land that's associated with that voucher, and there's also unit-wide vouchers, correct? Exactly. Yep, there is unit-wide ones, um, but they're starting to give more and more of the private ones, it seems like, the private land only. And the and, private land only, what's the stipulation that if, 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 if they give you private land only vouchers, you also have to let a certain amount of the public hunt? Is that correct? Nope, nope, that's not correct. But um, So a lot of people get confused, too. So if you buy a private land voucher from, say, for instance, our ranch, some people think that you're only allowed to hunt that piece of private when, and when you're really allowed to hunt private in, in on any of the private in that unit. So, okay. you, you know, it's not, it's, it's all of the private in that unit, but not the public ground on that particular private land voucher. If you got a unit wide voucher, then you could hunt private and public throughout the whole unit, but you can't just go hunt private that you don't have permission for. Exactly. Yep, that's that's true. You can't. It's just whatever you can get permission to hunt on. Okay, but the benefit of a unit-wide voucher is, 
let's say I have a unit wide voucher and I'm hunting your private land, if there's public ground, whether BLM or forest or whatever, and, and a big buck goes off the private, goes on to the public, I can then pursue that buck and go hunt that buck on the public ground. If I have a private land only voucher, I have to stay specifically on that private ground. Exactly. Yeah. But if the buck goes across, crosses through public and goes on to another piece of private, let's say a neighbor or a friend of yours, and I have permission to hunt that private ground as well, I could then pursue the buck on that private ground. Exactly. Yep, that's true. Okay. Okay. And then speaking about the draw, and, and we're going to kind of get into how you do your hunts and what have you, uh, people listening can also apply through the draw process and draw a tag in the units that you guide in, in the units that you have private ground in, and can book a hunt with you, correct? Yeah, that is correct, and I always try to encourage them to contact me before the draw because, uh, you know, like you said, oh, some of these some of these areas take you can draw them on second choice. So I know you know that you're going to draw it, and I don't want to have like 20 people call me after the draw and want to book a hunt because I'm very limited on the people I take because I'm trying to manage for more of a trophy style deer, you know. And so I'm only taking a handful of people. So I try to encourage them to contact me before they draw and we can kind of discuss points and, and some different options we have for different points. And by, call, yeah. and by calling you early, in essence, what it does is it allows you to kind of organize who's going where and try and space out and make everything work the best. Calling after the draw, it's tough because at that point, then they're only they're limited to landowner vouchers. Yeah, and usually, I mean, as an outfitter, you know, usually by time the draw's over, you're usually booked. Once in a while, yeah. you'll get a cancellation or something, then we can take that guy, you know, later on. But um, for the most part, we like to be contacted before. Okay, um, Clay, let's talk a little bit about uh, your hunts, you know, starting from the beginning of season and how those hunts progress through the season uh, you know, do you do archery hunts? Do you do the muzzleloader hunts and, and kind of walk through what you do on an every, every year basis? Yeah. So, uh, we do them all. We do archery, muzzleloader and rifle hunts. Um, you know, and they're all really good hunts up here, uh, on our private lands. Um, for, for instance, uh, in the archery season, we, uh, we do a lot of habitat improvement on our ranches and we plant a lot of alfalfa fields, um, they got turnips, different things in them. And so we, we get a lot of wildlife that hang out on our ranches at all times. And uh, it's a very important factor of why, for instance, some of our ranches are better than others around here is just because of the fact that we have those food plots and those habitat improvements. You know, we brush beet, we clear acreage and stuff. We, we put water holes in. Um, we're doing a lot of different things to hold wildlife uh, longer in all seasons throughout the year. So... At all times, you know, you never know what you're going to see on the ranches. One of the things to point out, um, I guess we should say, uh, specifically the, the areas of private ground that, that you hunt in the most, what units are those? There's a, there's a bunch of units. Um, what, do they, uh, in, in, what do those units encumber there? So, yeah, where I'm, for, for the most part, where I outfit out of is uh, like unit 18, 181, 27, 37. 371 and 28 um i got some 
contacts and ranches down in 68, 681, 682. Um, so that's kind of, for the most part, where I outfit out of. Um, you know, so it's, it's a big area. There's a lot of land here. If you look on and, the and on the GMUs. The, it's it's a big amount of country. The thing to point out, though, is it's not it, it there. A lot of these units are not extremely hard to draw units, um, so it makes opportune for opportunity for someone like yourself. I think that you know you're not guiding in some of the units that take you know 17 points to draw a tag or you know 12 points to draw a tag. Um, but I think with that comes. I imagine it's hard to try and manage private property when the, the, the deer could very easily just walk right. You, you know, you spend time trying to, you know, help grow these deer and, 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 and such, and they just walk right off your property, right onto public ground. But that's kind of part of it, isn't it? It is. And that goes back to, uh, depending on how um, much snow we have during that fourth, third season. I mean, these, this wildlife around here, they're triggered by the, the weather, and if we get a big snowstorm in November, they'll, they'll move very quickly down into their winter range, and, and most of the winter range is public, so it opens up a lot of opportunity for the public guy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the archery hunts, uh, you run archery hunts, and, and are, are those, do you do any like high country um, uh, mule deer hunts, or is it, or, or, let me back up. The areas that your private ground, what is like the average elevation of where your private ground is? And then are those deer on that archery hunt, you know, in the summer, so to speak, are they on your property or are still a bunch of the deer way up in the high country as well? So we range from like 70 to 200 up to like 9,000 feet on the ranches we have. And, you know, like I said earlier, these deer come from all over, so they're they're spread all all over and uh on our ranches mainly because of the habitat we've put on there uh they 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 we have a lot of resident deer so they're on us all year we got bucks that we we've watched we raise them in the summer and they're there in november come the rut at the same time though we do get a lot of bucks move in in november in other words you've got a bunch of does so the bucks just show up and they also show up because they're coming down because they don't want to get stuck up in the high country in the deep snow exactly because you there's a lot of basins up here um sage basins and stuff that are up there you know and they're trapped in the bottom of these 13,000 12,000 foot peaks and if they don't get out of those valleys they kind of get stuck in there or it's really hard for them to get out and then it just takes too much out of them over the years working with um a bunch of the governor's tag uh hunters uh you've gotten to know the state pretty well in your mind from an archery uh, standpoint uh speaking specifically about public ground hunters in your mind what are some of you know top units that you would rattle off that that you would encourage people to look at um to, to to hunt and be able to have an opportunity at say you know 180 190 inch plus deer on the archery hunt so you know like unit 55 and four you know they got some good high country areas and anywhere that you can you know you can see those big above timberline basins you know with the big patchy willow bottoms and stuff and grassy areas you have a great chance i mean like i said most units in the state on the western slope have that kind of country 
so really anywhere does but you know a lot of people seem to apply it on there for 55 54 um mainly because it's a lot of public and not high country basins but at the same time you know a lot of the people shoot most of the big deer on private lands you see a lot of the bucks summering on the on the ranchers river bottoms and stuff in the alfalfa fields and and once they strip their velvet off they kind of go back up in the timber and disappear until the rut you know, you mentioned those big above timberline basins for people listening on the podcast. How, in your mind, do you think people can research and find those areas where those above timberline basins are, where there's those big willow benches and and um, willow patches kind of down in the creek bottoms and what have you? Um, you've obviously said 54, 55. Like, do you think searching on Google Earth, I mean, would you call Forest Service? What What, what would you do to... You know, if, if, if to the people out there listening, what would you do to try and find those areas where it's going to be most conducive to find those big, you know, velvet deer? So, yeah, you definitely got to do your research. Um, I, you know, you can call the Parks and Wildlife and they'll give you a lot of valuable information. Uh, I do a lot of research on Google Earth myself, um, learning new areas and kind of picking spots that I think are good. And the best way to learn them is honestly just to hop on there, find an area and then, you know, put your boots to the ground and go check it out i mean that's how you find most of your big deer in new cool spots but i mean most of the people that hunt they aren't physically able to or won't go into those areas so it's uh you know it takes a certain mindset to go up there and stay for three to five days in a backpack tent you know dry food and that whole deal and just a lot of people aren't willing to do it you know put the time in so but for the guy that is man there's there's endless possibilities out there for for the person that'll do that and you know i use go hunt a lot they have a lot of great information on their website you know they got maps uh you know a lot of valuable insight you know you can call the team over there and they'll give you some good advice uh it, it's a very useful tool that i've become to use a lot for sure and i think specifically when you're talking about draw odds and like that tip that you gave earlier about not only your units you know but there's a lot of units out there that, like you just said, if you apply for a preference point as your first choice and apply for some of these 100% um, chance or, you know, say over 75% chance with zero points or, you know, one, two, three points, you know, even if you had a lot of points using this GoHunt Insider to see what your best opportunity, because you can also look at harvest success, you can look at, um, you know, draw odds. Uh, you can find some of those units that, you know, man, the quality is good in that unit, but also I can get it on my second choice and not affect my points. That's huge. It is. It is. It is. It's, that's for sure. Why do you think some of the, the units like, you know, 21 and s some of the units that, that are notorious in Colorado for big deer, you know, it, it seems like there's some areas that, that are ever bit as good if you really did the research. And then there's some units that are just popular, you know, the 201s and, uh, you know, some of the units. It just seems like there's a lot of hidden opportunity in Colorado if you really kind of dig into it. That's for sure, man. And, uh, you know, like you said, you always got your unit 44. Everybody hears about, you know, Eagle County and, the thing about unit 44 and these trophy units is there's just such limited amount of tags. It's almost impossible for people to draw them and to, you know, go to that area. And with the point creep every year, it's harder and harder. And 
you know, you get, I get a lot of people calling me with 18 to 20 points and I'm just like, man, I don't know. It's frustrating. You're better off to burn them and hopefully get a good deer. And then, you know, enjoy a lot of these lower point units that you can hunt year after year and have the, you know, just as good of odds almost. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned it, it's funny, you mentioned 44 and I'm just looking at the Gohan insider. For instance, 44, if you're talking about muzzleloader deer September 10th through the 18th, I mean, it's it's an 89% draw with one point. So one of the best units, you know, the, let's say one of the most popular units for big bucks, and it's notorious, I should say, you can go there and hunt with a muzzleloader with one point and have an 89% chance to draw it with two points you have a hundred percent chance to draw that tag. I know it's crazy. Whereas, <laughs> whereas you go to the same unit in 44. Um, let me pull up like a four season and I'm betting it's going to be super high points. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's crazy because you talked earlier about those deer move along ways, but I would venture to still say there's those, a bunch of those big deer in 44 are right there during that muzzleloader hunt. You just got to go find them. Yeah, and you know what's hard about Unit 44 for most of the people putting in, you know, they got the 23 points it takes to draw a four-season tag is, yeah, they draw the tag, and that's great, but there's no resources out there for, like, for instance, me to go over there and guide and outfit you because there's only, I think there's one outfitter in Eagle that's allowed to hunt most of the area, and then some of the better spots, they don't have any outfitters because you're in conflict with the mountain bikers and the people that jog and stuff, and they don't want to give a permit for those areas. So there's really no resources where a guy can, you know, you know, pay an outfitter to go over there and help them out. So they're kind of going in it blind. It's, it's, it's kind of a bad thing. You know, you put in that many years and you can't have public knowledge or somebody to go over there and help you enjoy your hunt. Yeah. I'm looking at unit 44, November 5th through the 13th, third season last year. Um, the same hunt that you can draw a muzzle or a permit with one point, it's 11% draw with 20 points and it's a hundred percent draw with 21 points. Mm -hmm. That's just mind blowing to me. I I mean, um, that's that, this is a perfect example where, you know, if you, if you use a tool like this, go on insider, I mean, if you do your homework, you can go there on a muzzleloader hunt and, and work it out. I bet you you could kill 180 inch plus deer. Yeah. And so like the deal with over there in that area is it's really thick. You know, you get a lot of the oak brush down low and then it's real thick, heavy, dark timber up high. And there's not a lot of those big subalpine basins and stuff that everybody, you know, pictures when they go up in the high country. So that's one thing about why there is big deer over there is because of how thick it is, you know, the limited amount of tags. And it's just, it's hard for people to kill those big bucks with a bow or muzzleloader over there. But at the same time, there is giant deer there, and you always have a chance to see one there. You know, anywhere you go, it's just a matter of how many days you got and, you know, how much time you'll spend hiking around in the quakey patches and the, you know, the big meadowy spots in the mid-country, the mid-elevation stuff, because they are there. But it's hard to it's hard to capitalize on that when the opportunity arises. Uh, I'm looking here. You said uh, units you guide in 18 18- uh, 181, 27, 37, 28. Um, if, if you apply, uh, for an archery tag, uh, it's a hundred percent draw with zero points. So you could literally put in, if you're listening to this podcast, you can literally put in and go archery deer hunting 
and and go hunt with clay uh, right there and then let's click down here to um, I'm scrolling down to muzzleloader it's a hundred percent draw with zero points you could go hunt with clay <laughs> <laughs> I'm running an ad here for you, Clay. Yeah, just no, kind of mind blowing because <laughs> I, I, I see the size of deer. I see what you're doing. And here is second rifle season. Second rifle season, October 22nd to October 30th. Um, last year, 100% draw with zero points. Yep. And so my question would be I would look at that and say, well, yeah, but. Well, look at this. Third season, 100% success, zero points. Yep. And so I would tell the, the public guy that, you know, if they're looking for a hunt where they got a lot of country, and if they'll, they, you know, I always refer to put your boots to the ground and do your homework and hike into these farther places, get away from the general public, you have good odds. But for the most part, it's really frustrating hunting these lower point units because you'll drive around on a lot of the public and you'll see literally hundreds of people so it's very frustrating um i do know a handful of public people that come up here and they have very good luck but it all depends on how much work you want to put into it and uh if, if a guy's not afraid to do a little hiking man there's some great areas yeah and and you know it it, it definitely is one of those things where I'm sure when you go through these odds and go through these numbers and see you know easy draw odds that also equates to like you said a ton of people yep but that's also where value is brought in like yourself having knowing the country really well but even even more than that having private ground um you know it becomes extremely valuable whereas maybe in some of the units like like uh you know a a, a 44 or a you know 21 or a 201 where it's ever bit as good a hunting on the public as it is in the private i don't know that the private has quite as much value in that in that exactly regard. you know well, what i'm and, saying and you get over in like eagle and Vale and that valley and there's a lot of people with a lot of money who don't want anybody on their properties and they've you know they've got a thousand acres and there's never been anything harvested off of that place so yeah i mean you get into them towns and there's a lot of wildlife in the city limits you know you can drive through town and see a 200 inch deer and I mean, they just that's just what they do they live there year round they don't leave so it can be frustrating but the public in those units is just as good as the private like you said you know i think i i, I want to bring something up here and and it's um worth mentioning i think you bring up a good point because you've got guys like yourself that are sixth generation ranchers and families that are also, you know, multiple generation ranchers all over the state of Colorado that you know. And kind of private landowners in general all get thrown into the same category with with some public hunters. And I'm going to try and be a little bit ginger here, but oh, they're just private land and oh, they don't they don't care about the wildlife. Well, you're talking about there are people that have a lot of money and they have these properties and they are not going to let hunting at all. And then they have guys like yourself and families that you know 
that are saying, no, I'm going to let people hunt. Obviously, I'm going to charge a fee. But to me, there's a difference. And I feel like you guys, and I use that term loosely, you guys all get thrown into the same category of private landowner and sometimes get vilified Mm -hmm. when, hey, I'm a private landowner, but I allow hunting. So I'm, I'm not the total enemy here, whereas... And, and, and I don't want to say anybody that's, you know, has money and doesn't want hunting is that you should be an enemy. But what I'm saying is a lot of times guys like yourself that are ranchers that love hunting, but are, but, you know, have six generations of family that have owned property, get passed down, passed down, passed down. You own that. You're, it's in your family or, or people that you lease ranches from. That's, that's, they've paid for that. And I, I just want to point out that, you know, from my perspective, and I'm speaking on my opinion only, like there's a difference. There's a difference when you have guys like yourself, Clay, that are, you know, generational families that allow hunting. Of course, you're going to it's it's has value and you're going to charge a fee, but it's better than the ranch that gets locked up and doesn't allow anybody to come hunt. Yeah. And, you know, what I see a lot around here is there's some people that come in here and buy these big ranches and they don't know about hunting for, you know, 10, 15 years. And they finally, you know, the wildlife becomes so abundant on it that they have problems with their, you know, eating stuff out, um, you know, and it becomes an issue. I mean, hunting is a very useful tool and it's not saying that you have to go in there and kill every animal on there, but if you manage it correctly and, you know, take a certain amount of animals off of it, it's good for a lot of things. And a lot of the places here that haven't allowed hunting on it, you start to see a lot of bad genetics in there too, because you know, they, they just continue to breed and you're not taking them out. And so it's in my, you know, hunting is a, it should be, I think it should be utilized by most people. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to pillage the land and animals on it, but it should definitely be controlled and, and done on most of the properties around here, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just funny to me how some, and, and there's some Western hunters that, that, that look at Western landowners that are selling hunts on their private land, and they kind of vilify that, but the same, you know, hunter will go back and hunt with a, with a farmer back in Iowa, and it's just, oh, it's just, they own, they own ground back there. I don't really see the difference. I mean, like you've got a farmer that's taking care of his land and managing his wildlife back in Iowa or, you know, uh, you know, Ohio or, or, or Michigan or what have you. And then you've got a, a, a rancher, maybe not a farmer, but maybe a farmer or a rancher that owns property in Colorado. And some somehow sometimes those people get vilified. I just I don't like that personally. Um, I'm I mean I'm all for public land hunting. I'm all for private land hunting, and I think there's a place for each each one. And I I just thought I would um, get into that. But um, I I want to talk to you about the success of your archery hunters, and then go through your archery muzzleloader and rifle, and kind of trophy expectations, and kind of the bucks that you see get harvested, and 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 what you guys harvest from year to year. So on a, like our archery hunts, you know, I, we, we generally, we have a hundred percent, um, six or chance of opportunity. Everybody that comes always gets a shot, you know, and you see a lot of deer and the people that harvest them, you know, we generally take that 165 to 180 inch type deer and 
you know, I mean, every year we get a couple over that 180, 190 range. And, you know, every year there's a 200 incher that comes through our properties. And I mean, not just one, but there can be, you know, numerous ones or some years there ain't any, but we generally take that 165 to 180, 185 type deer and, uh, you know, shot opportunities, hundred percent. Okay. Uh, and then the muzzleloader hunt, uh, that, that, also takes place in the velvet do you do muzzleloader hunters as well we do and so uh essentially you know we have weird muzzleloading laws here in colorado with what you can use and no scopes kind of cut back our yardage but you know you can shoot a little farther than a bow so you get out in that 100 yard range 150 um it does increase your chances of taking a deer and same thing you know you got we get a 100 percent shot opportunity on those hunts also what do you see the same type of quality as the archery, or does it go up just a smidge? You know, not really, um, but it does allow the guy that when you do see that, you know, higher quality deer, it does increase your odds of getting him just because of the fact that you don't have to get quite as close. Yep, makes sense. Um, and then as you transition into what is called the second rifle season why don't they call it the first rifle season <laughs> that's one question i always have is it's you know it's the second rifle season but it's actually the first i explain that to me yeah just it's the second season but it's the first season that you can hunt rifle deer so they got a first rifle season elk only and so they just kind gotcha. of rolled into second gotcha. okay and then second season uh what kind of buck are, are you chasing by second season um that's usually what kind of late kind of late mid to late october are you chasing in essence the same deer or are now you starting to deal with a little bit of migration and a little bit different deer um on your properties you know uh essentially it's the same deer you know as we were hunting earlier but we do you know the deer kind of move around a lot and I'll go back to our, um, you know, food plots and all the habitat work we've done. It does draw more deer in than other places. And second season in general in the state of Colorado is usually a very tough hunt. You know, I mean, the, the big bucks are, they kind of go off and they're getting ready for rut and they're, they're eating all the time and they kind of stay hidden out. But well, we have all these great, you know, habitat improvements. These deer never really leave because they're doing all that on our properties. They got way better food than they can get anywhere else. What kind of quality um, do hunters kind of expect to see and, and harvest uh, on that second uh, rifle season? So it's 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 kind of the same type deer. You know, you're hunting that 165, 180. Uh, you know, we we killed a couple 180 bucks last year on our lease, and you know that's a great deer anywhere. Um, as you start to get into that third and fourth season, is when you really start to see a bunch of those new bucks that you know you you might not have seen them the year before even they just funnel in there out of this high country and is and, and at all times during the summer we've got you know 40 to 80 does on our property and as you start to get into that end of second season it ain't nothing to drive around and see 100 to 250 deer on our property wow it's crazy and that's when you see those that's when you start seeing those 180 plus bucks and then as you go from third to fourth it just gets better and better and then of course i'm sure after the season's over that buck that you've been you know waiting for all year shows up at thanksgiving after you you know stuff full of turkey you go out on a drive and they're all over the place it is it's crazy i mean those big bucks they're smart man but if the snow drives them down they got no choice they come out um, you know, I'm not saying that that's all of them. Like I said, you do get the big bucks that come in and 
earlier too, but it dang sure helps, you know. I, I want to touch on, I, I know that uh, you like Kuyu gear, and uh, Kuyu is a sponsor here of this podcast. Um, talk to me about the different pieces of Kuyu gear that you use and why, and you know what, what you like about it. So I own probably every piece Kuyu has. <laughs> um, I, I, I love all of you know what they've done with what you know their gear uh up here our seasons change so much you don't want just one piece you know you need i need a layering system where in the early seasons i can take it off because it can be it can be below freezing in september here and then at 10 o'clock it's 65 70 degrees so if you don't have a layering system it just you're sweating and then you know you got the odors and you're uncomfortable so essentially what it lets you do is you know have you're comfortable at all times and uh, they've done a really good job with some high quality gear. It's breathable. Um, I mean, like I said, I think I own every piece they have. Let's say for the archery hunts and the muzzleloader hunts kind of in the early season, what pants do you wear? Um, so I got like their, you know, really I use their guide pants all year. I don't really have a problem with my lower body, uh, you know, with heat and stuff. Um, so I'm always comfortable in those. I actually like the little thicker, layering in them for when you're on your knees and stuff and they got those attack pants i think it's the attacks with uh-huh. the, the knee guards yeah and those are awesome for archery because i've been i've had times where i've been on my knees waiting for a buck to stand up or an elk coming in and you oh, can't you're, move yeah and, you're talking about the the alpine pant yeah, yeah alpine, alpine with the knee pads yep, yep yep and so i mean really you can't go wrong with any of their stuff and you know i always wear the guide jacket I, it's just one of those layers that I have on in the in in September and October and, and in November. But I mean, you can't go wrong with any of their gear. And like I said, if if you have every layer, you can always take it off. Do you find us, you know, going into third and fourth season? Um, do you wear the the Kuyu Super Down jacket or the new Kenai jacket? That's the synthetic. Um, w- which one do you find yourself using more? Um, if you had to choose between the super down uh, and the and the uh, keen eye synthetic, so it kind of depends on what I got planned for the day. If I'm going to be out hiking and kind of going to be away from the vehicle for a while, I use the super down because it's super light. I can throw it in my backpack; it doesn't add a bunch of weight. And if I'm kind of cruising around, you know, on the on the rangers or you know out of the pickup, I'll wear the keen eye. It's a little thicker. Uh, you know, it's not a lot heavier, but it's a little heavier and. I mean, really, any of it's good. I mean, that, that ultra down that you're talking about, it, for as lightweight as that that jacket is, it is amazing how warm it is. Yeah. Uh, have you been able to use any of the tents? Yes, I have. Yeah, I like that um, two two person Mountain Star tent. That's the one I've been using. Um, I like the fact that you've got you know two entry points to entry and exit on both sides, and it's you know three and a half pounds, so it's it's. Uh, it's uh it's it's really easy to set up and it's it's durable and i just i enjoyed using that yeah i use it all the time preseason scouting i mean there's days i'll go up and stay for a couple days in the the not higher country but just higher than normal and it's too far in the vehicle to come home at night so like you said it's super lightweight easy to set up and that that two-person entryway is the only way to go if you're hunting with a buddy because uh nothing worse than your friend crawling over you in the middle of the night to step outside (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure i get you there um 
Well, it's been awesome having you on uh, the podcast, and um, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can uh, get a hold of you if they have any more questions. Uh, you know, and then you mentioned some some southern units in Colorado, and um, you just there's there's a, a wealth of knowledge here, and I just want to give you a chance to um, let them know how they can reach you. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. So I got a website, hillhunting.com. And then, uh, you know, most of my contact information is on there, so you can find me on there. Uh, Instagram, um, Hill, Hill Guides and Outfitters, same with Facebook. And, you know, I, I mean, I encourage people to call, not necessarily. I mean, I'm not looking for everybody to book a hunt, but like you said, I mean, growing up here, I got a wealth of knowledge of most of the state. We got friends all over, you know, out to the plains. And if anybody has any questions regarding, you know, drawing odds or statistics or, you know, just want to talk hunting, give me a call and I'd love to talk to you. That sounds good. Well, buddy, sounds good. I might have to come uh, uh, see you there during fishing season this summer and uh, look you up. So uh, thanks for sharing uh, with us and spending time here, okay? Yeah, thanks, Jay. I appreciate it, bud. All right. I look forward to seeing some of the big deer you guys uh, get. It's always fun uh, yep. checking out your Instagram page. Yeah, we'll see what happens this uh, spring. I'm Man, I'm excited. Good. Good. You've got some deer. I know you've got some deer that you, you know, you've been kind of um have high hopes for and such so that that's always fun and keeps you motivated huh oh man and then just um there's a few on some of our leases that i'm really excited to see what they look like this year awesome all right buddy so, take care okay thanks jay all right god bless bye yeah later bud